0: this week at Hope Week. And God didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn. He came to redeem, that's what it says. He has come to us to redeem. Whenever you hear the word redeem in the Bible, Old Testament or New, you need to think money. You need to think finances. You need to think the price that somebody paid in order to solve a problem, pay a debt. Zechariah's song talks about is our redemption that God so loves the world, He's willing to pay the price of His Son's death for you to make it to heaven. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's Holy Word. I want you to imagine you're watching a huge movie today, scene where something big, Is about to happen. Something big needs to happen. There really needs to be an action hero to come and make a difference in a a very bad situation. And your music gets very loud. And it's one of those moments, you know, where you would expect somebody like Rambo to come on the scene and to just all of a sudden take over, defeat evil. You know, so when you have this feeling of anticipation at a play or a movie, that's sort of what it was like in the first century, the first Christmas, The end of the Old Testament promises that something will happen, a great word or great deed from God will be be spoken to the world in in the coming of of the Messiah. But there's been 400 years since God has uttered a word. There's been no sermons, no new churches, no blogs, because God's people have been living in disobedience, so he didn't speak. So for 400 years, the, the, uh, the spiritual climate was one of apathy and rebellion and the political climate was, was even worse. We can tell the way that Luke begins his, his narrative. It says, in the time of King Herod, or Herod, king of Judea, that would have sent a shockwave of despair to, to the people of Israel because it reminded them again that they didn't have a true king. He was half Jewish, half a his His mother was Jewish, his father was not. He didn't have the values of the Jewish people, the heart for the Jewish people. He was once again israel was occupied by rome and they had been occupied by 580 years by the babylons the persians the greeks and now rome's and now this this guy this clown was their king he was uh, he was the opposite of a messiah he was unjust he was unrighteous he was cruel he even had his sons killed because he thought they were trying to take over trying to take over his 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 kingdom <clears throat> And now, you know, he was, he was the king of, of Judea. And so there was this time of spiritual silence because the people had given up that God would ever speak again. There was political chaos. And this is the time of the movie where the, mu- the music is building. You just know that there's gonna be this action hero that, that comes onto the set and takes care of everything. And then this is how Luke begins his Christmas narrative. Luke 1.5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So right when you think that maybe the the gospel writer Luke is, is writing because We're about to get a Messiah onto the stage, into the movie, walks these two old people. (laughs) Neither one of them are gonna be the Messiah because they're old and their children are gonna be the Messiah because they have none. And so there's sort of this this letdown. You were expecting something great, a climactic point in the movie, and then there's nothing. Now trust me, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah felt exactly the same way. When they got married, now you need to remember, there's a very special marriage. I mean, Zechariah was a priest and Elizabeth was the daughter of a priest. It was like a preacher marrying a preacher's daughter. And so through this couple, they were going to, everybody was looking, well, maybe this is such a special wedding, the Messiah will come through them. Listen when Jewish bride when a Jewish girl got married when she became a bride her primary hope was to have lots of children so that out of one of her children one of them might be the messiah and if anybody ever thought that the messiah was going to come from a couple it would come from the preacher who married the preacher's daughter it didn't happen you know infertility has always been one of the great pains that a couple and a woman can can carry. My wife and I were married 10 years, dealt with infertility, and we weren't able to have a baby, and then God blessed us with a daughter after 10 years through adoption. But during that time, there was, you know, during third year or fourth year, you might can say, I could live with this. But then fifth year, sixth year, and then seventh year, and then everybody's always asking, and you feel like, I mean, you want say, hey, we love children. We want them. And then you feel like you got to explain medically what's going on. Well, and then people don't want to know that. And it's just awkward, and it's hard. And then you multiply that by the ancient times when people viewed infertility as a, as a, as a sign that God had withdrawn his favor from your life And so there was a sense of abandonment. There was a sense of very painful uh, mystery. I can't tell you all the pain that's wrapped up in that final verse, verse seven, they were childless. All the prayers that had been made for them, all the longing, and yet there was this sense in their life that you know, if you've ever longed for something with all of your heart and you didn't get it, you, you understand what it's like, that you wanna be able to think about something else, but you can hardly think about anything else. And you feel like that God has, has passed you over in some way. But even though their journey had turned out to be quite different than they thought, much more pain than they thought, they, they still love the Lord. Look at verse six. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. That's a very important phrase. Not righteous. (laughs) Righteous in the sight of God. Because Israel was filled with people who were self-righteous and were righteous according to doing ceremonial things, but not many people who, when God looked at their heart, he saw a love for him. How about you today? Are you righteous in the sight of men? Are you righteous in the sight of God? What he really knows about your heart. They were really righteous they truly loved the Lord. Despite their disappointment, their heartache, and their pain, they didn't become bitter. Uh, Zechariah continued to do his work as a priest, and God was about to bless that faithfulness. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, at this time in Israel, there were, there were about 18,000 people, men like Zechariah, who could trace their lineage back to Aaron, the first priest of Israel. So in essence, there are 18,000 priests. And the way that it worked is that those 18,000 people were divided into 24 groups. And those groups would go to the temple, one of the groups would go to the temple for two weeks, like a two-week, uh, not a vacation, but a two-week assignment every year. And out of that group of priests that would go to the temple, one man was selected to go into the temple at this time and burn incense on the altar. So I'm sure some of you are doing the math and can figure out. It was very unlikely in any lifetime that you would be the one that would be chosen to do that. And so when, you know, and so but he was chosen by a lot, which some of us would say uh, uh, is a, um, a um, coincidence. But you and I know as believers in Christ that a coincidence is actually a miracle by which God chooses to remain anonymous. So God chose him that day. Uh, unlikely choice. And the highlight of a priest's life was being chosen for this, to go to the temple during those two weeks. And, and what he would do, he would, he would go into the temple and stop right before the inner room called the Holy of Holies, and there was an altar. Now his fellow priests would have come before him and spread coals all over the altar. And then the priest that was chosen, like Zechariah, would come in that day and he would put incense on those burning coals and smoke would fill the place and as the smoke rose, the priest would pray for God to do a great work among the people. And the smoke was a symbol of the, of the prayers of the priest and the prayers of the people rising. And the people outside the temple right knew right when he uh, they put that incense on those coals. They could see the smoke and they know they were being prayed for. They knew that God was listening to them. But they also knew that this was a fairly straightforward act and it was time for Zechariah to come out. He'd done his deal, but he didn't come out because he got interrupted. Then an angel of the Lord, this is while he's doing his, his incense thing, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense and when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Now, you, could, you can relate to this no matter who you are, just the fact that you're in a room or a house and you think it's empty. <laughs> somebody calls your name. I've been here before where there was nobody in the parking lot. I thought then I would hear something happening and somebody else was in the building. So you can multiply that by a gazillion when all of a sudden somebody else is in that room. Nobody is there. I mean, there's only one priest chosen for this. Nobody's supposed to be there. And he, he turns and he doesn't just see a person. He sees a supernatural being an angel, so you can understand that he is, of course, gripped with fear. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, I, you, know, you read that and you could be tempted to think it was Zechariah's prayer for you know, a child, a baby. I, I don't think so. I mean, the Bible says Zechariah and Elizabeth were quite old. I think that longing was past, or, that, or the, the prayer for that was past. I mean, I just would say that based, based on me. Yesterday, my wife, myself, went to her father's house, home place where he grew up, and uh, we wanted to have one last Christmas with all the cousins, all the family, all the aunt and uncles. And so we took Wells because we wanted him to see it, and Wells and I. Uh, had a little race down the lane that goes to their house. And of course, Wales wanted to do that all day. I want to do it once. So Lisa and I are in our 60s now. I can tell you, we love being grandparents, but we're not praying daily, God, give us a baby. <laughs> so I think Zechariah and Elizabeth were past that prayer. So what what were they praying? I think they were praying... God, would you give that baby to some woman in Israel? Would you please bring the Messiah through a family? Would you bring a king to the nation? So I'm begging you, God, would life occur in somebody's womb that the Messiah would come? And that's exactly what Zechariah was told would happen. But what he was told here is that you all will have a baby and your son will be the man to introduce the Messiah to the world. That's what you get, Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's the greatest privilege in life is what was given to their son. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son and you're to call him John and he will be a joy and delight to you. And many will, will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of, of the Lord. I don't want to... Just one minute. I don't want to miss something that's very important here. One second. Could be patient with me. That's good. John's name means uh, the Lord is gracious or the Lord gives. So this is obviously a suitable name for their son, because the Lord has given a gift that they could not fabricate themselves. And the reason why he was gonna be a joy and a delight to many people is because he was gonna introduce the greatest news in the world that there's a Savior that's come and he will be great in the sight of the Lord because our greatness is not determined by our fame and our fortune and what we accumulate. Our, our greatness is determined by the things we do for a great God. So he was given the task of serving a great God by introducing Christ to the earth. Second description of this boy, he's never to take wine or other fermented drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. I don't think this is an anti-wine verse. Hey, I found one. (laughs) I think what it is is to say that this boy from the time that he was born was going to be so devoted to the Lord there just wasn't going to be a lot of time for leisure in his life. He was going to move to the wilderness and he was going to preach to an unrepentant Israel that Jesus Christ the Messiah is about to come, prepare your hearts and receive the Lord. He wasn't going to have time. He only had one uh, piece of clothing and that was a camel's uh, hide. His, the only thing he ate was locust and honey. He just didn't have time for lots of leisure and activities that were, the many of us enjoy. His, he was going to be dedicated to the Lord. It reminds us when I see this verse that he wasn't going to be uh, you know, filled with wine. You remember when Paul said in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit? simply means be controlled by no substance in life but Christ. And here, John the Baptist was controlled by the Lord his whole life, his whole heart. Quite a gift to parents. Here's his mission. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the heart of the parents, their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I mean, this is the, this is the message of that angel to Zechariah, this is what your son is gonna be. This is the hope and the longing of every parent. And really, the, the key verse is verse 17. When, uh, because it's, matter of fact, you can, you can sort of cross-reference me later. It comes from Malachi 4, 1 through 5, where it says that before Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes, there would be one who would come before him who would have the power of the prophet Elijah, the greatest prophet to ever minister in Israel. Now, if you can read about the ministry of Elijah, he did a lot of great miracles, and he was a great courageous confronter of wicked kings. And the Bible says that culture would be so messed up at this time when John the Baptist was gonna be born right before Christ would come as well, that even the family unit would be disintegrated. Even sons not respecting their parents and parents not caring for the spiritual welfare of their children. Spiritual apathy, spiritual rebellion, idolatry. And so this young man who would introduce Jesus Christ to the world would need the same power that fell on Elijah to fall on him. And that's really what all of that is talking about in Luke and and Malachi. Wow. I mean, an angel tells you this about your your, your child that's about to be born. Almost too good to be true. In fact, Zechariah thought maybe it was too good to be true. Luke 1.18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah is telling that to an angel. okay. Uh, I know you're supernatural, I know you came from heaven, and I know you were sent here by God to tell me the message of God, but uh, how can I know that you're telling me the truth? Ooh. Uh, I've read this passage years, and every time the response of the angel just absolutely frightens me to death. Here's the angel. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you, to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come at the, their appointed time. I think if Zechariah would have ever written a book about this incident, it probably would have been entitled this, How Not to Respond to an Angel by Zechariah the Priest. Because basically, Zechariah said to him, "Uh, I don't believe you. This cannot happen because senior citizens don't have babies. And so he was looking at his problems and relying on his resources rather than looking at his problems and bringing God's resources into the equation. I don't know if any of you've ever done that before. And in essence, the angel said to him, how dare you question me? How, you, how dare you question the goodness of God? Zechariah, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're not gonna be able to speak for nine months until the baby is born because you've doubted the goodness of God in your life. Well, by this time, the people were getting absolutely uncomfortable. Where in the world was Zechariah? The angel said to him, or verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. This is This is another bad thing that happened on this day in Zechariah's life. Not only did he lose his voice, but when uh, a priest was given the task of laying the incense on the burning altar, he also was charged with the task of when he left the temple to go out and pronounce a benediction of blessing to pray for the people. And he missed this opportunity because of disbelief. So he completed his two weeks The rest of his two weeks of duty, and then he returned home to his wife. Verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. I can't imagine what it was like, after two weeks of being away, that Zechariah came home and walked through the door, his wife waiting on him. She asked, how'd you go with the temple? Can't talk. Can only write. And says, we need to be intimate. <laughs> and she said, you know, he's been away two weeks. I've never heard that excuse before. But then he says, we're, writes, we're going to have a baby. I saw an angel when I was spreading the incense on the altar. And our child is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Whew. And of course, she then believed and he was silent until the baby was born. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, which was the day of circumcision for a Jewish boy, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. This was completely unheard of, especially with your firstborn. It was supposed to be named after the dad. So they're all expecting for her to say his name is Zechariah Jr. John. So they don't really believe her. So they, they go try to convince her. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he knew at this time, if I'm ever going to speak again, I got to get this one right. So he gets out his little writing tablet. He asked for a writing tablet and everyone's astonishment. He said, his name is gonna be John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. What a privilege it is. I'm sure you've already experienced it and will when the service is over when I finish teaching, to be able to sing. You have a tongue that can extol the praises Of God, and Zechariah was now allowed to to praise the Lord. And we're going to finish the message by looking at the song that he sang. Uh, In Latin, the church has referred to his song as Benedictus, which means the blessing. And it was Zechariah pouring forth praise to God in front of the community of what God had showed him in the temple from the message of the angel. And so now we get to listen to Zechariah's. Song. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. I know all of you are in the mood for Christmas. There is not a better way to say what is Christmas about than God coming to his people. Or, as some translations, God has visited his people, made a house call. He's come. And God didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn. He came to redeem. That's what it says. He has come to us, to our homes, our businesses. come to our gatherings to redeem. Whenever you hear the word redeem in the Bible, Old Testament or New, you need to think money. You need to think finances. You need to think the price that somebody paid in order to solve a problem, pay a debt. So, in order for our problem of sin and our stained hearts uh, to be paid and for forgiveness to be purchased, the, the price that God had to pay was the death of his own son, the suffering of the Messiah. Remember in Ephesians, when Paul said this, used the very word redemption. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So the first thing that Zechariah's song talks about is our redemption, that God so loves the world he's willing to pay the price of his son's death for you to make it to heaven. Second part of his song he has raised up a horn of salvation for us to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. So the second thing he sings about is God's power. Whenever you talked about the horn of an animal, like the horn of a bull, you would think about its power, uh, massive power in the horns of a bull. So here God is said not just to have the desire to be able to get us to heaven, the desire to to completely cleanse our hearts of sin, he has the power to do so. He promises as he lets us have access to all of his power. He's gonna use his power to defeat all of our enemies. You don't have to live on the world, on this earth long to know you're gonna have enemies. People are gonna hurt you, gonna do things against you. The Bible says that God will rescue you one day in his time because of his promise to send Jesus Christ. He'll rescue you from all of your enemies in his time. Obviously, the greatest enemy we face, two enemies, the power of Satan and the power of death. Whenever we yield our lives to the power of Satan and we believe that he deserves deserves our allegiance more than God and we bow to him and do the things he leads us to do, At that moment, he has the power in God's court to condemn us when we die. Because we did it. We surrendered to his power. We're guilty of that. So the power of Satan and then the power of death, and because God so loved the world that he sent Christ to destroy Satan through his blood and his suffering, our greatest enemy, the power of Satan and the power of his accusations that our death is destroyed a third thing that the song of Zechariah mentions is a transformation of our heart. Verse 74, to enable us to serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. Before Jesus Christ came into our heart, we were afraid of God. We we, we didn't we didn't want to be honest with God or with any of God's people. Just sort of living fake, superficial, shallow lives, dodging and hiding. Because we thought God wanted to condemn us. We thought that God was just waiting every minute in heaven for us to fail. And now we serve the Lord without fear because we know that Jesus has come to forgive those who failed, to use us even though we're flawed. And so even though there was a time in our life when our only ambition was to serve ourselves and our agenda, the transformation that Jesus has brought in our life is now we, deserve, we desire to serve him. We were disconnected from purpose before Christ. But now the only master in our life is the master of the universe. We want to serve him. He's completely transformed our desires and given us desires for to be righteous and holy. And then the last thing that Zechariah sings about his son. You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness And in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I love this metaphor of what Jesus Christ will do when he does come to the world. You can just imagine right now a group of people all over the world on every seashore standing there, pitch black, nothing but dark. They can see nothing. They can hear the ocean's waves, but they cannot see the ocean. To the right or to their left, they see nothing. There's no stars in the sky. There's no condominiums with lights coming out. No hotels on the beach. Dark everywhere. It doesn't matter if they were to go a mile up the beach, it's just as dark. The darkness has been created because every time they resisted the light of God in their conscience, it grew darker. And now there's been no sunrise for 500 years, and it's dark. And so, the only thing that people do here is they either sin with one another in their darkness or they hurt one another in their darkness. But this only makes the darker darker. (sighs) And it's a place of despair. And right when it looks like all hope is lost, someone sees a glimmer of light on the horizon the first light that's been seen in 500 years. Somebody says there's light, and all of a sudden that little piece of crest of sun that's coming up becomes larger and larger, and no longer is it just a little bit of light, but now there's color, red and yellow and orange, and it's not just a light that people see, but it's a light that people feel as that little crest becomes a ball of burning fire in the sky and it soothes and warms their skin. This is what Zechariah said John the Baptist would announce to the world that there was coming a man, an anointed man sent from heaven, the Messiah, a king who was so righteous and so powerful that he would be able to stand in Jerusalem one day and say to those who were gathered there and to Spartanburg, all you who are gathered here, John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And That's the message that Zechariah got to announce the world, that, that the light of the world was coming. I'd like to summarize this with four quick points. Number one, God is not looking for impressive people to change the world. Zechariah and Elizabeth were old They had nothing to offer God except their availability. The church in the West is in a dangerous place thinking that there really needs to be some impressive person, some impressive program to save the world. God's never worked like that at all. The only thing God is looking for is faithfulness. Number two, if you want God to use you, the answer is to keep showing up. The reason that he saw that angel that day in the temple is because he went there. Because he'd gone there all his life and finally that day was the day where God was ready to do something he didn't expect. Especially when you're in pain. The answer is keep coming here. Keep reading the Bible. Keep praying. Keep singing. Third principle from this. Slow does not mean no. They were an old couple. They thought it was a no for children. It was just a slow answer, but not a no answer. It was a wait. Wait on the prayer that you're asking for me. I'm sure all of you probably have some Christmas presents under your tree right now, and you know what's going to happen a week before, or two days, three days before. One of your children's going to say, can up, please open one of them now? They always do that. We always do that with God. Can I open it now before Christmas? And God says, "Just wait. I'm working on something. I'm working on something." God is never in a hurry because He knows the time is right. Number four, the greatest disbelief that a believer can embrace is that is to believe that God is not working with a plan in our lives; that He's somehow not good. He's not doing good. We all look at the news and say, God should do something. We'll look in our lives and say, God should do something. Do you know that right now the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is holding the whole world together? He's doing stuff. Especially in your life, believer. He's always working for your good. Zechariah's name, you know what Zechariah's name means? God remembers he remembers your pain. When we say that God does not does not remember our pain, God does not remember our needs, we're just denying the gospel. The whole message of the gospel is that so he he is so intimately involved with our pain that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to alleviate our pain. You know what uh, Elizabeth said when she found out she was going to have a baby, or actually when she had the baby? God has removed my disgrace. Do you know the greatest disgrace in life is not infertility? The greatest disgrace is not losing your job. The greatest disgrace is not rejecting being rejected by a spouse or having a child live in rebellion. The greatest disgrace on earth is when we turn our back on God, and say, I don't owe you anything when we owe him everything. That's the greatest disgrace that can fill our hearts. And the Bible says that God so loves us that he sent Jesus Christ to redeem us from that disgrace, to bleed for that disgrace so that disgrace can be removed. So Zechariah's name means God remembers. Elizabeth's name means the Lord promises. Put them together, God remembers his promises. So God remembers today the injustice you experienced. God remembers today the medical crisis you're in. God remembers today your longing to be forgiven, clean. And the reason why we know that God remembers that is God remembered his promise made at the beginning of the Bible to send his son as the Messiah to die for our sins. And if he remembers that, he'll remember every single need you have in your life. God remembered to come the first time and God will remember to come the second time to take you to heaven and every moment in between God remembers all that you need. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.